Hey everyone, welcome, welcome. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from New York and um, super excited for all the newcomers and all the oldcomers and um, happy to get to know everybody. I love, you know, all the cameras on. I could see the faces. It's just a beautiful thing. Um, so tonight we're going to talk about step one out of the AA 12 and 12. And, you know, it's a very short little chapter and you would think, how could you possibly fill up a whole, you know, a whole block of time on it? But it's got some crucial information and it's really rich and there's an awful lot there to discuss. So I'm going to jump right in. Step one, page 21, it says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And so there's two big concepts just right in that powerlessness and unmanageability. You know, powerless means that we do not have the required force and power to manage this problem, right? And unmanageability is, I can't manage it. I've got a problem that I can't control and I can't seem to manage this problem, right? Um, you know, and there's a lot more to it as well, right? There's whole, um, I have a whole podcast on um, unmanageability, what it means to be unmanageable. And it's more than just the bedevilments. A lot of times we look at the bedevilments and we say, oh, right, that's unmanageability. But I, I'd say the bedevilments are the consequences of having an unmanageable problem. So Let's jump into the chapter a little bit more. Page 21 says, who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. So, you know, there's two things I've already found out in just that short little thing. One is that nobody wants to be in this predicament. So hearing that you just don't want this enough is not usually the truth. Because, you know, nobody that I knew grew up as a little kid said, you know what, when I grow up, I want to be a compulsive overeater. I want to like have Ben and Jerry's be my boss, right? I want to be enslaved to, to Kit Kat bars, right? Um, or to diets or to Jenny Craig, like nobody feels that way about themselves. Um, you know, and the other thing is that my natural instincts are problematic. Think about that. You know, addicts cannot live with their instincts running them around. And it's another way that we're different from normal men. You know, we're, we're a distinct entity. We're told that in the doctor's opinion, that we are very different from other people in the world. And other people in the rest of the world can rely on their instincts to keep them alive. You know, the instincts are self-preservation, sexual instinct, and social instinct. And so self-preservation, preserving our lives, basic things, hunger, thirst, sleep, et cetera. Most of us arrive in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous because we cannot live in the ways that are life preserving. We don't have the capacity 
to do the very things that keep us alive as human beings. You know, on my own human power, I was actually killing myself through overeating, through bringing in too much food for my body to handle. You know, that's instinctive. How much food some, something takes in is, is a product of instinct. You know, and what I say is that I've had dogs that have had better self-preserving instincts than I have. Like I've had animals, pets, that they reach a certain point and they stop eating. But I haven't had that capacity on my own. Okay, my sexual instincts, addict sexual instincts, the natural desire to have sexual relations, which keep our human species alive. And this disease often kills our sexual lives as well. We run from one extreme to the other, either no sexual appetite or an insatiable libido. You know, and our social instincts, the human connections we need in order to live as social creatures. You know, we're very different. We're human beings. We're not cats and we're not snakes. Humans require social connections and cooperation in order to live well. We're not designed to live in isolation. Yet in the pursuit of the food, we avoid social opportunities or when suffering from the after effects of a binge, we drive ourselves into complete isolation. And in fact, the extreme self-centeredness of being in actively eating or actively dieting or actively restricting or actively over-exercising person drives us into isolation. You know, Bill talks about being the lone wolf. We become the lone wolf. And when we're the lone wolf, we're in a perfect position to go right on doing just what got us into this mess. You know, and I think back to myself, to all the times I would get angry. I got angry a lot. I would pout and withdraw. And the food was the only company I was interested in keeping. And in fact, I think sometimes this disease, the need to eat, created the conflict. I used to think, you know, I was so sensitive, my feelings got hurt, and then I ate. But I think this disease looks for me to quickly get my feelings hurt so it can keep me alone and keep me right on eating. You know, the 12 and 12, um, and also, oh, so it also, so here is, when I want to say about the instincts, no wonder why we can't rely on our instincts, right? Instincts are unreliable for us. And in the 12 and 12, step four, page 44, it says, alcoholics especially should be able to see that instinct run wild is the underlying cause of destructive drinking. So in fact, the big book tells us that it's when I'm halfway through the ninth step that I will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. So basically, we get our instincts back in step nine. I don't have reliable instincts until that point. Because if I'm able to rely on my intuition, if I can call upon intuition, that means that I can rely on my instincts. So until then, it's clear 
then I'm going to be doing things that are not instinctive. They're going to feel foreign. In the steps, I'm going to be asked to do things that I'm going to question that don't seem like I, sh I want to do it very much, right? Uh, and oftentimes we say things like, I don't know, this doesn't really feel right. This doesn't feel right for me um, because I can't rely on my feelings at that point. Page 21, it says, we've warped our minds into such an obsession for destructive drinking that only an act of providence can remove it from us. I think that's so important. That concept in step one tells me right away, my only chance is having the care and guidance of God. That's it. That I need something divine. It's only an act of God that can remove the obsession. Basically, I am a woman who must have a miracle. Step one is the absolute admission that nothing but a miracle is going to do the trick for us. You know, nothing but a miracle is going to be sufficient. So a food plan is important, right? We want a food plan. It should be free of your alcoholic foods. Yes, you want a really great sponsor. Yes, you want an awesome meeting. None of those things in themselves can remove the obsession. If the desire to eat is still strong, it means we must work on building our relationship with God. It means that we must be pursuing this miraculous intervention. And we're told right here that only God can remove the desire. And so I think once we know that, it's clear. Every other step has got to be about finding our way to that caring and protective power. And we need to start seeking right away. We can't wait. Prayer has to begin right away. By the way, people who need miracles are willing to seek miracles. They generally don't negotiate the terms of a miracle. They don't run it through this doesn't make sense filter of their mind. They say, I need a miracle, help me. And then they go through great lengths to receive that help. And we're very lucky because we've got the formula for a miracle. So we're people who need a miracle and we've got just that in mind. Page 21, no other kind of bankruptcy is like this one. Alcohol now becomes the rapacious creditor. Such an ugly, real vision. Like what a visual. The rapacious creditor leads us of all self-sufficiency and all will to resist its demands. Once this stark fact is accepted, only our bankruptcy as going human concerns is complete. And I think about, there's so many places where the book, where whether it's the big book or whether the 12 and 12, really give us visuals of what the disease looks like. It's an evil force. I mean, you know, they, they oftentimes they'll personify it. They'll make it into like, sounds almost like a person with human-like characteristics or like a demon, like a monster, like a beast, you know, the rapacious creditor, something that's going to bleed me dry. That's a little bit more than I need to lose 10 pounds, right? That's a little bit more than I don't really like the way this dress fits on me right now. 
like, this is like a pretty big, serious thing, you know? And I think like when you're bankrupt, this is going to, this is talking about bankruptcy. It means that you're completely in debt to something else. Like you're owned by something else. You know, food is the rapacious creditor. I say like, you know, rapacious, it's greedy and evil. Think about it. It's like, it owns us. You know, I would said like food for me held the mortgage to my soul. Like it was the mortgage holder to my peace and happiness and joy. And it robs me of all the ability to take care of myself. And I can't resist it. Like I know this and yet I can't resist its demands. Compulsive eating demanded everything from me. You know, it's the creditor that knows every trick to get me to sign on the dotted line, to agree to its terms. And it can be strong and it can hold me down until I sign it, right? Until I give in and I can't resist. And I've had times where that's what it felt like. Like it was like, I knew it was going to hurt me, but I couldn't do anything but eat. Couldn't do anything but eat. Or it can be subtle and sweet and trick me, right? You know, like it hides the terms doesn't really tell me, you know? Um, and I can't resist it when it's like that because it doesn't even look like it's gonna trick, it doesn't even look like it's gonna hurt me. You know, the rapacious creditor can hide the terms in fine print. It looks like it's healthy. That's what it would be like for me. This is healthy. This isn't that bad. And, and how do you resist something that doesn't look like it's harmful, right? It's like, you know, if it shows up like a bunny rabbit, why would you be afraid of it? Why would you fear it? You know, when I think about being bankrupt and the greedy creditor to me, I think about, it's like I owe money on a charge and maybe it's a small charge at first, but I don't pay the bill. <laughs> and then I'm compounding interest. And I'm actually winding up compounding interest on my interest, on my interest, on my interest. And this goes on indefinitely. And I'm completely in debt. Can't make the payments anymore. And until I say, I can't make the payments, I'm bankrupt. The, the debt just keeps incurring. But once I make that declaration, that's like step one. That's my admission of complete defeat. You know, as long as I thought that I was getting away with it, and I think about it like these payments, as long as I was able to make the minimum payment, I thought I was getting away with it. As long as I could lose 10 pounds to fit in that dress, as long as I could diet during the week, I thought I could do the job alone. You know, it usually has to reach a pretty visible spot with most of us, with most of us, either morbid obesity, serious complications for bulimia, difficulty getting along with our loved ones, you know, hiding in our rooms when there's a party happening in our house. It usually has to turn on the screws and put us in a lot of pain. You know, and what I say is that's like the eviction notice on the door. The eviction notice gets on the door and then I declare, declare I'm bankrupt. Okay, we perceive that only through utter defeat are we able to take our first steps towards liberation and strength, admitting personal powerlessness is the firm bedrock upon which happy, 
and purposeful lives may be built. So what is bedrock anyway? Bedrock is the unbroken solid rock, the bottom layer that lies underneath generally the soil, right? It's the lowest stratum that all things are built upon. It's the foundation, right? or it's the fundamental principles on which something is based. So our recovery, our entire recovery is built upon this 100% unbroken foundation, this principle, this understanding that my happy and purposeful life has to be built on a bedrock of my complete brokenness. Like I think about that. My entire foundation is built on the fact that I am broken. Why is that crucial that we understand that we're completely broken and powerless? Because then we know that we are going to have to seek something more powerful, right? If I still think that I've got some kind of power then I might not seek the other power, the real power that's required, right? And that's what gives us happy and purposeful lives, that power, that higher power, okay? We know that little good can come to any alcoholic who joins unless he has first accepted his devastating weakness and all its consequences. So if I join OA and I don't admit and accept my devastating weakness, basically admit powerlessness, then I can't be truly happy. That's what it tells me here. I can't be happy unless I admit complete defeat. Not just admit my defeat, but accept all its consequences. What do they mean by that when they say accept all its consequences? I think right in step one, they're making clear that we are going to have to look at our wreckage. Like we're just admitting powerlessness and we're already being given this like notice. We're gonna have to face the consequences of our unmanageability, the harms, our defects, and we won't actually be truly happy until we do. In fact, you know, when do we start getting happy in the steps? Sometimes people are like, I don't know, I'm not feeling happy yet. Well, we're told in the fifth step, we start getting happy. Page 75 in the, in the big book says, withholding nothing, we're delighted. So when we withhold nothing, when we start getting really honest with our sponsors and we tell the whole truth, then we get delighted. And the ninth step promises on page 83 tell us that we're going to get a new freedom and a new happiness. So there's two places. If you're wondering in the steps where you are and you're not feeling any joy and any happiness yet, you might need to look, have you done a fifth step? Have you done it thoroughly? Right? And have you, have you made some amends? Are you making your amends? Page 22. The principle that we shall find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat is the main taproot from which our whole society has sprung and flowered. So not just my recovery 
is going to be dependent upon this. But our entire program, like all of it, the main taproot from the whole society is this large central dominant root, all the other roots that are going to sprout off of it, the anchor that holds us into the ground for our whole society is anchored around the idea of complete defeat. So basically, when you're at a meeting and they say like, um, you know, um, if you're, you know, if you're a compulsive overeater, you know, kind of raise your hand. Basically, what we're all admitting at that point is I'm defeated. <laughs> I'm defeated, guys. And that's what that's part, just part of what binds us together. We have something else that binds us together as well. But the admission is our main taproot. It's what anchors us, holds us here together. Page 22, we had approached. JA expecting to be taught self-confidence. Self-confidence was no good, whatever. In fact, it was a total liability. So self-confidence is the underlying cause of self-reliance. When people are self-reliant, it's because they have too much confidence in themselves. They believe in themselves. Believing that I got it. I got it. I used to say all the time, I got this. I got it. I can handle it. I, I know what to do. I can do this on my own. Whenever I've tried to do it on my own, the results were never very good. And for me, it would start out as a small, seemingly harmless decision to make my own choices. Whether it was a food choice that I just, you know, didn't think was necessary to, to tell my sponsor that I was making this change or my nutritionist, right? Um, an unreported change, deciding that I can substitute one thing for another, or I don't have to share something with my sponsor, some little truth, some little fear, some little problem. I got this. I got it. I got it. You know, if we insist we got it, you know, we don't need help. Basically, what are we doing? We're refusing help. And if you refuse help, that's crazy, right? If you're coming to a 12-step group and then refusing to receive the help that's being offered, that's pretty much the definition of insanity, right? Page 22, our sponsors declared that we were the victims of a mental obsession so subtly powerful that no amount of human willpower could break it. Willpower is an, is an insufficient power source. It may work for a period of time. It may be available one minute and then gone the next. I say it has an expiration date that's unpredictable. You, can't, you don't know when it's going to expire. I go to call upon it. It was just there five minutes earlier and now it's gone. Willpower is a mental defense, and we have no mental defense. I can use willpower in many areas. In fact, we're told later on, we can use willpower in seeking God's will, but I can't use willpower for the food, and I can't use willpower to battle my addiction. When I first came to OA, I actually really thought 
that I was going to be given greater willpower. I remembered hearing that this tiger in the cage kind of thing, like you're going to have to take the tiger out of the cage three times a day and get it back in safely. And, um, and I remember thinking, oh, right, right. So I'm going to need a really strong cage and you're going to have to give me some strategies for re-caging the tiger whenever I let it out. And actually we have something so much better than that. We don't have tigers in cages anymore because we have a higher power who miraculously takes tigers and turns it into kittens, right? So we don't require cages and we don't require willpower for our food. The desire gets removed. That's what we get promised. When we say we're people who need a miracle, that's the definition of me, what it means to have a miracle that the desire to eat is gone. And it wasn't my own power. I could not make myself not desire something, right? I'm incapable of doing that. Relentlessly deepening our dilemma, our sponsors pointed out our increasing sensitivity to alcohol, an allergy, they called it. So over time, we get more and more sensitive to our allergy. The foods that caused me problems, they became larger problems. It progressed. My disease got stronger. It got more cunning. It got more powerful. It got more baffling. And here it says the tyrant alcohol wielded a double-edged sword over us. First, we were smitten by an insane urge that condemned us to go on drinking. And then by an allergy of the body, that ensured we would ultimately destroy ourselves in the process. So I have a mind that keeps bringing me back to do the some things that I'm allergic to. And this allergy, it isn't a rash and it's not difficulty breathing. Like Janet describes her cat allergy. This is different than that kind of allergy. My allergic response is in the form of a craving. Normal people, get satisfied and they lose interest in food. And in fact, each bite they take, the desire to eat decreases. But for me, when I begin to eat in ways that are not in agreement with my food plan, the desire for more increases. And this is an abnormal response and I can't control it any more than I could control myself from getting a rash if I decided to rub poison ivy leaves all over my body, right? I could, I could rub them on my body and say, okay, now I won't get the rash, but I can't, I can't do that. And yet the true insanity isn't that I have an allergy. That's not what makes me insane. True, I'm powerless over the effects that the food have on me. But my biggest problem is that I am actually powerless over the insane urge to eat the very things that I know are problematic, to eat in the very ways that I know cause me problems. Page 22 says, it was a statistical fact that alcoholics almost never recovered on their own resources. And I would say, yep, that's the same for compulsive overeaters. How many of us have seen people go in and out and in and out and in and out of the rooms, myself included, I did that. 
And I have yet to see somebody who goes out, recovers on their own, and then comes back to the room a victor. No one comes back victorious. And yet that's what I always wanted. Whenever I left the rooms, one of the things that kept me away and kept me from coming back was this pride, this self-reliance, this complete lack of humility, and that the idea that I would have to come back with my tail between my legs. I just wanted to come back victorious. And it makes me think of, sadly, of all the fellows that say, and I've had it happen many times, you work with someone, they reach a certain point, and they say things like, I need a break from this. I need a break from this work. I need a break from this. The truth is, they only think that they can take a break. You can't take a break. You can take a break from doing the work, but you're not going to take a break from the effects of this disease just because you walk out the door. Doesn't mean that you're not suffering from this disease. In fact, you're not going to come back. Generally, they don't come back right where they left off. You take a break. It's not like you put a bookmark in your book and you come back on the page you left it on. Every time I took a break, it was like I took the whole book, I ripped it to shreds and I threw it in the fire. Now I have to come back and find a whole new book again, metaphorically, right? So we don't get a break because the disease progresses. I never got a little bit better on my own. I always got worse. You know, it goes on to say here that in the early days, only the most desperate cases were able to buy into the notion of powerlessness. And, and then even the ones that were really like in the last stages of this disease still had difficulty realizing how hopeless they actually were. Yet what we know is that when they grabbed onto the steps, like the drowning sees life preservers, they consistently got well. So you wanna know how to consistently get well? Grab the life preserver. Right? I want to talk about what it means to grab hold of a life preserver as if you're drowning. If you're drowning and somebody tosses you a life preserver, you don't enter into negotiation with the person who's rescuing you. You don't tell them that you don't like that life preserver, that you want a different color. I want the red one, not the blue one. I want the one that straps between the legs and not through the, through the waist, right? None of that. You don't start giving instruction to the person who's rescuing you, telling them exactly how you'd like the rescuing to take place. What do you do? Well, you don't pretend that you can swim. You don't say, I got it. I don't need your help. You certainly don't fight them and you don't swim away from them. In fact, what you do is you stop swimming. You surrender. You allow the rescuing to take place. If you're told, hold on, then you hold on for dear life. If you can't hold on, you scream, help me, right? And in fact, some can barely hold on themselves. They actually need to be basically lifted out because they don't have the strength to hold on themselves. If somebody is still thrashing about and fighting, they can't be rescued. 
I mean, the sad truth is my daughter's a lifeguard and she's told me that when people thrash about, you're actually supposed to knock them over the head so that you can rescue them. And, you know, we don't go around knocking each other over the head. That's the job of the disease. That's the job of the disease. And, you know, I say too, if you're getting rescued, you don't start vilifying the searching party, the rescue team that's out there to rescue you. You know, and yet I know in my own struggle with this disease, I quickly would vilify people who are giving me directions. I would say things like, I don't like the way that they said that to me. They hurt my feelings. Now, true, are there ever people that say things in ways that might, might you know, require a little smoother edges perhaps, but if you're drowning, you might not, you might not be so particular. Page 23, alcoholics who still have their health, their families, their jobs, and even two cars in the garage began to recognize their alcoholism. And as this trend grew, they were joined by young people who were scarcely more than potential alcoholics. That is such good news. That is like awesome, happy news to read. There are many people in Overeaters Anonymous who never had to get to 300 pounds. My story, you know, I often share my pictures and I show them and, I, you know, yes, I was over 300 pounds. And sometimes that's very helpful for a lot of people. Or Janet will share her story about needing surgery, right, for bulimia. Many of us have had horrendous consequences. And yet there are people who don't need to reach those consequences. And sometimes I, I think to myself, maybe I shouldn't have shown that picture because maybe I gave the impression that this is a program that only works if you're that bad, or maybe you don't need it unless you're that bad. And that, you know, we're told here, no, that's not true because we need to be concerned about people who might not reach that point, why? Why do we have to be concerned about people who, who haven't reached that point yet? Because our mission is to help others. That's our job. I don't wanna be able, you know, I wanna help people as soon as they're able to admit that they need help. They don't have to reach that level, right? I don't want anyone to have to wait as long as I did. So how do we then convince people that they're powerless before they lose everything? Page 23 says we raise the bottom for them. How do we raise the bottom for them? We go back through our own drinking histories. We tell our stories. We show them the fatal progression by identifying where it started in our lives. When there are doubters, we don't attempt to convince them. What we say is, okay, go try some more controlled drinking. And this is something that we're often told in the rooms. If you don't know if you're one of us, if you're not sure, go diagnose yourself. Step over to the refrigerator, try some controlled eating, try to eat and stop abruptly, try it more than once. And that's something I've heard at meetings. And this is what we call, you know, collecting the data. We're in research, we're in that research phase. And it is part of the experimentation process. How we help others then is we share our own experiences and we plant the seeds. Because once the seed is planted, the binges are never quite as enjoyable again. 
we kind of snuff out the enjoyment of eating. We don't do the convincing. Page 24 tells us John Barleycorn himself becomes the best advocate. So for us, the food does the convincing. Why all this insistence that every OA must, every AA must hit bottom? The, the, uh, first, the answer is that few people will sincerely try to practice the program unless they have hit bottom. We are going to be asked to do things that we don't want to do. Remember, our instincts are like, no, don't do this. But it's when we are convinced that we have no other choices left that we can choose to go through with the rest of the 11 steps. Who wishes to be rigorously honest and tolerant? Who wants to confess his faults to another and make restitution for harms done? Who cares anything about a higher power, let alone meditation and prayer? Who wants to sacrifice time and energy in trying to carry a message to the next sufferer? No, the average alcoholic self-centered in the extreme doesn't care for this prospect unless he has to do those things in order to save himself. Okay, but here's the good news. All of those things that I just named that we don't care to do, that we must do in order to survive, all of those things become the very design for living that not only works, but that we truly come to desire doing, right? Because when the root of the problem is removed, which is the selfishness, we are no longer the extreme example of self-centeredness. We're God-centered. And so we generally long, how's this? We long to confess our faults because we don't like how it feels when we live, when we live with our defects. We long to make restitutions because we don't like our guilty conscience. Yeah, we care about our higher power. We crave meditation and prayer. We long to sacrifice time and energy to carry the message to the next sufferer. It actually becomes the very thing that we want to do more than anything. That's a wonderful promise. Right here in step one, I'm going to tell you, in the beginning, what you no longer care to do, when this is complete, you will long to do those things. Thanks. With that, I'll pass.